0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So Hebrews 4, beginning in verse 1, if you've been here over the last few weeks, we've been in this series, Greater, True, or Better, uh, moving through the letter to the Hebrews. and For the last two or three weeks, we've been in what we call a warning passage. One of the features of the letter to the Hebrews is the author on five different occasions speaks a warning to his audience. And we're in the middle of the second warning in our, in our text this morning. And as we read through this, we're gonna, you're going to discover with me that this is a really cumbersome bit of, of Scripture, these 13 verses. It's, it's really difficult to track the logic and the thinking of the, of the author. It's confusing. So we're going to do our best to, to read through it. And I'll do my best to try to explain it to you as well as I can. Here's the one thing I want you to really think about, though. As we read through these next 13 verses, do me this favor. Pay attention to the times you hear the word rest or rested or an allusion to the word rest or rested. It's dotted throughout our text. Pay attention. We'll come back to that when I'm done reading. Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 13. from the foundation of the world, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, quote, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, end quote. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day today Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fail, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul, of spirit, of joints, and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account Amen. Did you count? How many did you hear? How many? I got 13. So who got 13? Raise your hand. Star for you. Uh, Maybe there's more. I I counted ten times the word rest or rest is quoted. I I see three allusions to the word rest. Simply, the reason I have you look at that is because of this. This is a confusing passage. It it reads confusingly. I'm the first to admit that. And, and, And much smarter men and women have come before me and thought this passage confusing. But as we look at that, we see this idea of rest emerging. Clearly, this is the focus and the intention of this passage. God uses this word rest to speak about something that he has made possible. God created you and he created me. He created us to enjoy rest in relationship with him. But if that relationship is broken, that rest is broken. Rest is found only for those who are with him. Our lives, apart from God, will not be marked by rest. We have the good news. And the scripture mentions the good news twice. God in his great love has made a way for us through his son that we could once again have what we have longed for. This passage reminds us today that real rest is available. And now, I'm going to say this a handful of times throughout my teaching today. If I could summarize these 13 verses into one phrase, this would be the phrase. Real rest is available for those who listen and respond in faith to the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what I believe is being said in these 13 verses. Let me say it again. Real rest is available... For those who listen and respond in faith to the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet I know that there is this elusive it that all of us experience. There's a longing of the human heart that all of us have tasted. There's an ache to the soul. We've all felt it. It manifests in unsettledness, in restlessness, restlessness. It manifests in uneasiness and anxiousness. We look for it. We look for an answer to this longing of our soul. I've said it before. The lights go out. We're in our beds with nothing but our thoughts. And if we listen, there's this background hum to our life. It's this longing. It's this ache. And so we look for answers to this elusive it in many different ways. At least I have. Maybe we think to ourselves, if I slow down, and I'm not so busy, that will address this longing. Or maybe if I speed up and I do more things and find more things, that will feel, fill this hole, this void. We think to ourselves, uh, I'm in the wrong job, I'm in the wrong career. Maybe if I switch careers, or, or maybe if I find the right partner, or maybe I married the wrong person, maybe I need to marry somebody else. We think to ourselves, this home, I just can't find happiness in this home or in this city or in this neighborhood. We, we think if we had the right friends and the right community, that might finally address this longing in our soul. We think to ourselves, if I had the right possession, the right things that would bring me joy that would be it maybe the right medication or the right diet or the right exercise regimen and sometimes even yes we think if I found the right religion and I obsess over the right religious practices maybe this elusive it I could finally scratch that itch that I just cannot seem to address if I could just have it maybe I'd be happy Perhaps you call this the pursuit of happiness. The problem is, there's never a happy ending. The pursuit never ends. Listen to what I read this week in a a blog by Randy Alcorn. Listen to this tragic story. Psychotherapist Lynn Rosen and motivational speaker John Littig co hosted an hour long radio show on WBAI in New York called The Pursuit of Happiness. But this Brooklyn couple's final act was putting plastic bags over each other's heads and committing suicide. Rosen and Littig were experts in pursuing happiness, yet failures in catching it. This tragic couple epitomizes the irony that the more we advertise and purchase products, events, and books intended to make us happy, the unhappier we may become. He goes on to say, many people try the age-old practices of turning to money and sex and power and beauty and sports and nature and music and art and education and work and celebrity. We turn to these things for happiness, but in the end, each of these proved to be a lie. He goes on to say, only Jesus was worthy of our trust. Only he could have granted in this life and for eternity the deep and lasting happiness we seek. And humankind has been searching for happiness since the beginning of time. The, the Greek philosopher Aristotle said, Happiness then is something final and self sufficient, it is the end of action. French philosopher Denis Diderot, he said, there is only one passion, the passion for happiness. Charles Darwin, the the founder of evolutionary theory, he said, all scientists or all sentient beings, all thinking and reasoning beings have been formed so as to enjoy as a general rule, happiness. A philosopher in the 19th century named William James said, how to gain, how to keep, how to recover happiness is in fact, for most men at all times, the secret motive of all they do. And of all they are willing to endure. Even Anne Frank in her diaries, this teenage Holocaust victim, said, We all live with the objective of being happy. Our lives are all different and yet the same. Alcorn, in his article, he contends, he says, The same is true for the most superficial materialist and the most devout saint. All of us are wired to seek happiness. The quest for happiness transcends gender, age, time, and life circumstance. In his book, The Discarded Image, one of C.S. Lewis's characters this night said this. Listen, he said, All men know that the true good is happiness, and all men seek it, but for the most part by wrong routes, like a drunk man who knows he has a house but cannot find his way home. Here's how Alcorn concludes his writing. He says, The human race is homesick for Eden, which only two humans have ever known. We spend our lives chasing peaceful delight following dead ends or cul-de-sacs in pursuit of home. We know intuitively that we've wandered. We, what we don't know is how to return. Our lives are largely the story of the often wrong and occasionally right turns we take in our attempts to get home to happiness with a capital H, God himself. Does this resonate with you? This longing for something is not by accident. It's an expression of something that is deep within our hearts, hardwired into us as men and women created in the image of God. The author of Ecclesiastes said that God has put eternity into every man's heart, and so we are longing for something more that this temporal world cannot bring. These haunting longings are are rooted in in many desires. Uh, We we desire to to live forever forever. We desire immortality, and so we do all these silly things to prolong life, to hide the effects of age, to to have the best possible practices that might give us that extra week, month, year. But in the end, God has put eternity under our hearts. We're not going to find satisfaction of that longing on this side of glory or this side of death. We long for intimacy. It's a good longing to have. We pursue it in human relationships. That's not bad in and of itself, but ultimately you and I have been created for an intimate relationship with Creator God eternity in our hearts. And yes, we long for rest. And there is a real rest that you and I were made for that we do not have. Blaise Pascal was right when he famously wrote that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. So you're at church today, so on some level you believe this to be true. Maybe you've centered your whole life on this and you live in this reality. Or maybe you're here today because you have been on these dead-end, cul-de-sac pursuits of happiness that have not brought satisfaction. So you're searching for that elusive it, but you're here today. So on some level you have to believe that happiness is found in God alone. That the elusive it, the longing of the human heart, the the ache of the human soul is only satisfied in Him. And if that's true, if there is an answer, if there is a joyous end to the pursuit of happiness in Jesus Christ, that means that there's no more desperate searching. That means that real and authentic rest is made available for you and for me today and it's found only in him. That means there is true contentment. That means there is settledness in our soul. That means there is lasting satisfaction. The pursuit of happiness finds its conclusion at the feet of Jesus, where we find true happiness, where we find Real rest. Remember, the big idea today is this. Real rest is available for those who listen and respond in faith to the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, there's some more truth that we find as we look at the structure of this passage. Again, confusing passage. I'm going to do my best to look at a couple highlights, a couple structural features in these 13 verses that we might on a deeper level, really absorb what the author and ultimately what the divine author is saying through the letter to the Hebrews. Remember, this was a letter written to men and women, Jewish Christians who have been suffering persecution, who are on the verge of giving up, of turning their back on God. They could not find that rest for their souls. They were going to start searching elsewhere, uh, put their feet on some other pursuit to some other source of joy or happiness or rest. And the author is writing them to say, don't do it. I know you're struggling from persecution. I know your families have abandoned you. I know you're struggling with sin. I know you can't quite figure out how your newfound faith in Jesus uh, interacts with or relates to your, your old faith through the, through the Jewish law. But hold fast. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't give up. There is rest for your soul. This is what the author is saying. First thing I want you to notice is this, verses one through five. Fear the failure to enter God's rest. Fear the failure to enter God's rest. Chapter 4 begins in verse 1 with this word, therefore, which means the author, he's drawing from what he's talked of previously. He, He talked about the experience of the wilderness generation. He drew from Psalm 95 to kind of put us in the world of the wilderness generation. Now, One of the confusing parts of this passage is there are four audiences we have to think of as we read this passage. There is the the object lesson, which is the historical Israelites who wandered for 40 years in the desert after they were liberated from Egyptian captivity. They wandered because they did not believe in the power or the promise of God, and they are the example of what not to be. That's what the author's been holding up the wilderness generation, saying, don't be like them. They failed to enter the rest. So there's that audience that we have to think of, the historical audience. Well, well, the author is drawing really strongly from Psalm 95 here. Psalm 95 was authored by King David, which is an entirely, he was writing to a different group of people. So there's King David's audience. Well, then there's the author of Hebrews. He was writing to these Jewish Christians in the first century. So they're the third audience that we have to sort of keep in mind. It gets a little bit confusing. And then ultimately, guess who the fourth audience is? Us. We're the fourth audience. And so you see how moving through this text might get a little bit confusing. But we've got to keep this wilderness generation in mind. Therefore is referring to them. Here's what Thomas Schreiner, a theologian, says about that. He said, The wilderness generation is repeatedly held up to the readers as a warning on account of their disbelief. Merely hearing the good news does not guarantee future security. The message heard is only useful If it's believed, otherwise it remains an obstruction or an abstraction instead of a living reality. And so here in verse 1, we see the first of two imperatives or commands in our passage. Look where it says in the second part of verse 1, Let us fear. Underline that circle, that please. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach rest. It. There are only two imperatives, and this is the first of the two. The next one is going to be found in verse 11. This word for fear, it is the first person plural, which means that as the author was penning these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was including himself in the admonition. The author of the book is including himself in this warning. I read this week that the warning then is not restricted to so-called weak Christians, but is addressed to all Christians everywhere. The strongest believer among us today, this warning is written for us. He is saying the thought of missing out on God's real rest ought to cause fear in you. I was drawn this week back to the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus is speaking about those whom he never knew. This this terrifies me, this passage. I know for those of you that have been around the church, you've heard of this text. But listen to what Jesus says to his audience in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The author says we need to fear, have a healthy fear, not an obsessive fear or an unhealthy fear, but we need to have a real genuine fear that we're going to miss out on the rest that God offers us through his son, Jesus. Remember the warning in chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Verse 2 says, For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith to those who listened. This is the good news. And, and the author is saying good news was preached to the wilderness generation and good news was preached to the Hebrew generation, the authors of, or the recipients of this book. The good news that the wilderness generation heard was, was the good news of, of, of rest that was found in a promised land. Whereas the recipients of this letter and us today, our good news is in the promised eternal rest that Christ has for us. The good news that the original audience heard and the good news that you and I have heard is the good news that God preaches. The author tells us here that it's possible to hear this good news and yet not hear it. Look at what it says in verse 2. They, the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith. They heard it, but they didn't hear it. Or they heard it, but they didn't listen. The wilderness generation heard the good news, but they did not hear it with obedience. Their hearing was not united by faith. Their hearing was not believing. And hearing the good news isn't just an auditory thing. I I think about what the, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 10 when he talks about our response to the proclamation of the good news. When we hear the good news of Jesus Christ... We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And it's in this holistic response of faith that we're saved. Hearing the good news leads to believing faith, which leads to the rest for our souls. Verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. goes on to say, back to Psalm 95 at the end of verse 3 there, he says... Uh, As he has said, as the Father has said, As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is yet again quoting Psalm 95. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Then we go to verse 4. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. This is a direct quote of Genesis 2-2. After six days of God's creative work... On the seventh day, he rested. It's interesting. We talked through, through Genesis here about two years ago. As you read the cadence of that, the creation account, after each day of creation, days one through six, there was morning and there was night. It was the end of the day. But when he enters the seventh day of rest, the day never ends because he enters his rest because his work is complete. Thomas Schreiner again, he says, the wilderness generation didn't enter God's rest... But the possibility was open to them, for God's rest began from the foundation of the world from the seventh day of creation. He goes on to say that Israel's failure to enter this rest then was not because God's rest was unavailable to them. They failed to enter the rest because they refused to enter, because they did not believe in God's promises. Think about this. When God finished his six days of creative work, he, he rested from his work. He didn't rest because he was exhausted or weary. He's God. He rested because his work was completed, and his work was complete. There was nothing else left to do. Again, Schreiner says, this rest, though it refers to a place, also includes the notion of fellowship with God. The author is making the point that God's rest has been available to his people since creation. As long as human history lasts, the opportunity to enter his rest is extended. The promise of entering his rest still stands, it says in verse 1. And guess what? We sit under that promise today. For those of you with wandering hearts, those of you in pursuit of the elusive it, this invitation to finding rest in God still stands. And then again in verse 5, he reiterates Psalm 95 again. In this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. That's, I think, five direct quotations of the 95th Psalm in this warning. So, so why so much repetition? Why, why, why is the author again and again and again coming back to this word today? And again and again and again coming back to this wilderness generation that didn't get it right, that missed out on the rest of God? Why? Why, why say, it, say it again and again and again and again? For those of you that are parents, you probably know the answer to this question. Clearly, we as recipients are in desperate need to hear this warning. And we need to hear it again and again and again because our hearts wander our eyes wander, our affections wander, our devotions wander. And those who turn their back, those who rebel, those who wander, do not enter his rest. So here's where the author is getting. Here's the big idea. Real rest is available to you and to me. Anybody who listens and responds in faith to the good news of Jesus Christ. So fear the failure of entering that rest. Second thing we see in our passage, verses 6 through 11, is we see this invitation to strive to enter God's rest. Verses 6 through 11, we see this this striving to enter God's rest. I get that word all the way from, from verse 11. This is the second command or the second imperative in our passage. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. If you're an underliner or a highlighter, you should pay special attention to that word, strive. It it, it seems as we read it, doesn't it, that, wait a second, we're called to rest, it's mentioned, what, 13 times in our text, and yet we're called to strive? Isn't striving and resting, aren't those antithetical of one another? I I think we'll see what the the author's understanding of this word, but let's work through the passage, and we'll come back to that word strive at the end. Look at verses 6 and 7. The author says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, verse 7, again, he appoints a certain day. Today. Saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Back to Psalm 95 again. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Here's what the author is saying to his audience. He's saying that wilderness wilderness generation that, that is so steeped in your understanding of who you are as a people, that wilderness generation, they had their today, and they didn't obey. I did the math. Forty years, wandering in the desert, they had 40 years to confess and repent and turn their face back to the Father. 14,600 todays. They let everyone pass and never responded. David's generation, the, the, the generation that received Saul, 90, that received Saul 95, they had their today, but they didn't obey. And so here the author is speaking to the original audience, those Hebrew Christians that received this letter. He, he's speaking to the Hebrew generation, and he's telling them, you have your day today. Today is your day. Today is your today. So obey. Obey this invitation of God. The implication for those of us that are in this room here this morning, today is our today. Today, through his word preached, as we sit under the the, the word of God preached in our midst, we hear his voice. Here's what God is saying. Do not harden your hearts, but obey. Today is the day. As people, and even the people of God, we are constantly tempted to say, no, 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 no. How about tomorrow? I got stuff I want to do today. I got some things on my to do list. I got some objectives I want to pursue. Tomorrow, I'll get right tomorrow. How often do we get caught up in this thinking that we can just put things off till tomorrow? The author says, no. Today, 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 today. And then he goes to Joshua in verse 8. This seems kind of out of the blue. He says, if Joshua had given them rest, the wilderness generation, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Joshua. Why are we talking about Joshua suddenly? Who's Joshua? Well, he was the predecessor of Moses. He took the baton of leadership from Moses for the people of God. He he led the people of God after 40 years of wilderness wandering. He led them uh, across the Jordan and into the promised land. We can read about him in Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua. All of a sudden, this name Joshua is being dropped in this passage. Why? Well, because they're writing to a... Jewish audience, and this Jewish audience would have heard all this talk about failing to enter rest, and they would have said, but wait a second, like, Moses never entered the promised land, but you know who did? Joshua did. Moses died on top of Mount Nebo, Deuteronomy 34, looking out at the promised land, never experienced it, but Joshua got to enter. Eventually, the people of God entered the promised land, but even though they eventually entered, they they did not enter the rest. They entered, but they did not enter in full obedience. They entered, but they did not enter rest, because they did not fully believe and did not fully obey. Joshua therefore took them to a land, but he did not take them to rest. That is why in our passage today, God is speaking of a yet-to-be-experienced rest. There is a day, a coming day, a future day, later on, The land of promise was not the land of rest. There must be something new and better if rest is yet to be experienced. Verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's us today. There, there, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That is that later on rest that is now available. This original audience, those Jewish Christians who are on the verge of giving up, it applied to them and it applies to those of us in the gym of Cascade Christian High School today. We enter God's rest by faith. Moses and Joshua, who are mentioned in this warning, they, they were pointing to something that would come later. There remains a Sabbath rest just as was promised. Which means that longing in our heart, that elusive it that always seems to be just out of reach if we listen if we turn our face to Him it leads us to Him. I like what the ESV, Study Bible Commentary, said about this word Sabbath rest. Listen to this. Therefore, the Sabbath rest remains possible for God's people to enter, even now, in this life. The promise of entering now into this rest means ceasing from the spiritual strivings that reflect uncertainty about one's final destiny. It means enjoyment of being established in the presence of God to share in the everlasting joy that God entered when he rested on the seventh day. There's even aspects of that rest that we we get to experience in the here and in the now. Now our hearts yearn for the day we stand in the presence of Jesus, Revelation 20, 21, 22, where our tears are wiped and we're in the presence of God and and we experience the rest in its fullness. But he gives us little glimpses of it today, doesn't he? Little droplets of that today. We have these disciplines, we have these practices, we have this life that we live in Christ. We're even here and now and already not yet, we experience moments of this rest. You know, what else else is interesting about this passage is that the name Joshua and the name Jesus are identical in Greek. New Testament was written in Greek. Jesus. So in verse 8, the author is mentioning both Joshua and Jesus. He's saying that Joshua, who led Israel across the Jordan, he is nothing compared to the new. Hold fast to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, because he will lead you into God's rest. And then we get to verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This is the gospel in one verse. This is what he's accomplished for us on the cross. Jesus did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. This is the promised rest of God. Christ is sufficient to bring rest. Trusting Christ and his works on our behalf on the cross is, is, the, is the way by which we find rest. Stands in opposition to all of the world religions, all of the world philosophies stand in stark co- contrast to this text. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So there's not, there's not a checklist. There's not a to-do list. There's not a bunch of things I need to do in order to earn some sort of salvation, or some righteousness, or some worthiness. What do I got to do? You got to rest in the completed work of Christ. That's what you got to do. For most people, that, that pursuit of happiness that I talked about earlier is a never-ending treadmill of trying to earn and prove your own worthiness, your own goodness, your own righteousness, your own virtuousness. It launches you into a never-ending rat race, this pursuit of happiness that will always promise and never deliver. The gospel, on the other hand, this good news that's being preached to us is trusting in the completed work of Christ. He's the one who makes a way for us to rest, which means our rest is resting in his sufficiency, not our own. It's being fully satisfied in him and who who he says he is. It's not a rest of inactivity, but it's a rest from attempts to try to prove our own righteousness, try to justify ourselves. Happiness is found in God alone. The elusive it, the longing of the human heart, the ache of the soul is only satisfied in him. No, no, no more desperate searching. There's real and eternal rest that is available to our souls. It's only found in Him. There is true contentment, lasting satisfaction. Go back to that picture in Genesis 2:2 2, 2 on the seventh day. God was fully satisfied with himself. That is why he rested. His works in creation were completed and they were complete. And he invites us into that completion. We will not enter into that rest if we are trying to find satisfaction in any other place. That takes us to verse 11 where we get the word strive. Therefore let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. At first pass, this word strive, like I said earlier, it seems antithetical to the word rest... The text tells us that we've got to strive, which means we have to work against all of our efforts to prove our own righteousness. We have to work against all those inward-focused, self-focused efforts to justify ourselves. Strive here is not the opposite of faith. It's the exercise of it. It's a striving that is anchored in the completed work of Christ. It's a driving to hold fast to Him. It's a striving that is anchored in His strength and not our own. It is not a striving in one's own strength. It's rooted in trust, It's a Christ-centered striving as a demonstration of trust. When I was going through college, um, my dad was a logger in Montana, and he got me a job uh, right after I graduated from high school um, as a hooker. Now, uh, for what that means is, I hooked logs. But that's so fun to tell people at a party, but anyways. (laughs) I hooked logs under a line machine in Montana and Idaho. And for those of you that ever worked in the logging industry, you know, for line machines, you got these long strips, these 1,500-foot-long deep strips, you are know, all this logging road, and, and you, you, you pull a skyline down, you tie it off to a tree, you tie off the the, uh, the boom of the, of the line machine, and then you have this block that goes, as you work down the mountains, and you got a guy in the brush who's hooking all these logs, and they're pulling the logs up the mountain, they're throwing them in a deck, and then they're throwing them on trucks and sending them to the mill. I was the hooker. I was the guy that stayed in the brush all day long hooking chokers, metal chokers, to logs that had been fallen by by fallers, and they were bowling them up the mountain. So eight to ten hours a day, I'm, I'm in, you know, brush over my head, working my tail off. And at the end of the day, the very end of the day, when we'd radio up, it's time to go home. It's Montana, up high, the direct sun, it's hot, it's brutal, I'm wasted. The, the line machine operator would send down a choker on the block, and he'd say, okay, grab on. He'd drop this line, I'd grab onto this line, I would, I would... I would hold fast to this cable. I, I, would, I would strive to not let go of this cable because it was my salvation. And very slowly, he would pull that, that, that block up the mountain and it would just pull me up. And I kind of bounced like a superhero, kind of like rappelling upwards. And it pulled me up the mountain and it was doing all the work for me. It was not my work. My only work was to hold fast to the cable. It was to strive in the work of the machine. And it would pull me all the way up the mountain and it would get me on the landing where I would find true rest. This is the striving our text talks about. It's a holding fast to Jesus and what he's done. It's not an inactive, I don't just lay on the couch. No, there are things, there are ways, there are practices. God calls us to look, holding fast to Jesus looks a certain way. So we're called to strive, but it's a Christ-centered striving. It's It's a striving that's connected to his strength and not our own. This is the picture that we have here. So what does this look like? practically speaking for the people of God gathered at Heritage Christian Fellowship on this Sunday as we think about striving to hold fast to Jesus what does that look like? well practically I think it it looks like trust it's trusting him to trust we have to hold on to him and nothing else we have to believe that he's enough trusting takes the form of prayer prayer is declaring to God his sufficiency it's declaring our dependence upon him Trusting takes the form of obedience. It's trusting that he knows the right way and not me. It's not listening to the whims of my heart, my fickle, wandering heart that will jump on any pathway that we think will, will bring happiness. No, it's, it's saying no to all those endless pursuits, and it's trusting in him in the form of obedience to him. And it's, it looks like resisting temptation. Trusting in him is, is turning from temptation and turning towards Christ. It's saying to him, your ways, God, are better than all these other ways that have so tempted me for so many years. It's recognizing the contain, that contained within the many empty promises, there is no happiness to be found. They always promise but never deliver. This striving, this trusting, This earnest and continual pursuit of Jesus might not sound like rest, but it absolutely is. Remember, this striving is is a work against all of our own efforts to prove our own righteousness. This is why Jesus could say in Matthew 11, by the way, this is why he could say to his disciples, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Oh man, let us be found with those promises on our lips. The passage last week, do you remember the imperative last week was to exhort one another? Let us never stop exhorting one another to hold fast to Jesus. God spoke this invitation over the wilderness generation, God spoke this invitation over David's generation, He spoke it over the Hebrew generation. And he speaks it over our generation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You better hear it. I better hear it. As I heard someone say this week, nobody is going to drift into rest. We enter rest by faith in Christ. Listen, church, this is such good news. This is such good news. Listen to this. Real rest is available. To you and to me. Real, authentic, satisfying rest, eternal rest is available right now to you and to me. Anybody who listens and responds in faith to the good news of Jesus Christ enters that rest. Lastly, and very briefly, hear God's invitation to rest in Christ. Hear it. Hear God's invitation to rest in Christ. Verses 12 and 13 are packed full of truth. We're actually going to come back next Sunday and teach these two verses again. So I'm just going to real quickly just do a 30,000-foot perspective on these two verses. Listen to what these two verses say. You've heard them before. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow. The word of God discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's no creature that is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. As we wrap up our exposition on these few verses, it seems like these last two verses on the very end of this warning, they seem a bit odd, don't they? It seem sort of out of place. At least they did to me when I read it. it. Seems sudden, like why are we suddenly talking about God's word here? Well, why is this exhortation concerning itself with the word of God? at the end of the warning. But then I realized, God has revealed himself to you and to me by his word, his living word, both the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, and the inscripturated word, the Bible. That's not my phrase, by the way. Someone smarter gave me that phrase this week. The inscripturated word. I don't think, think it still has a red underline on my Google Docs because I don't think it's a real word, but we have the incarnate word, Christ, the inscripturated word, the Bible, the living word of God has been revealed to us We're sitting under the the truth of God's word today, worshiping the living God, which has been revealed to us in and through Christ. That's a miracle. So God not only entered into rest on the seventh day, he not only made a way for you and me to find rest, he has revealed himself and his way for you and for me that we may also find rest. That's what that's saying. God, his word, we're going to find out next week, it both reveals the truth of who we are and reveals God to us. It's incredible. But it would be terrifying if there were a God who had secured a place of rest who then never revealed himself to us. It would be terrifying and terrible if there were a God who had the capacity to save lost sinners but never made himself known to those sinners. But that's not true of us. He has revealed himself to us by his living word. Hallelujah. Hear God's invitation to rest in Christ. So we fear the failure to enter God's rest. We strive to enter God's rest and we're here to hear God's invitation to rest in Christ. Listen, church. Real rest is available. Real rest is available to you and to me, to anyone who listens and responds in faith to the good news of Jesus Christ. I know I've said it a bunch, I'm going to say it again. There's an elusive it, there's a longing of the human heart. There's an ache of the human soul. We've all felt these cravings of something that seems just out of reach. There's a vacuum in our heart. We've sought satisfaction. We've sought contentment. We've sought joy. We've sought purpose. We've sought happiness. Whatever it may be, our soul is in search of this rest that God offers us. And in Christ, there is no more desperate searching. None. The pursuit of happiness ends at the foot of the cross. There is real and eternal rest for your soul. There is true contentment. There is lasting and complete satisfaction. We experience it in part now, but one day we'll experience it in full. I remember being at the Oregon coast many years ago before I lived here, and the, the, the sea was just roaring this day. Big, white, foamy waves crashing up by Lincoln City. I'd never seen something that awesome before. And my wife and I drove to the coast, and I'm just standing way back at this parking lot watching in wonder the power of the Pacific Ocean. And the mist was in the air. I'm sure you've seen this. And I saw these little droplets were settling on everything, and and some droplets settled on my glasses. And I pulled my glasses off, and I'm looking at these tiny little droplets, and I'm looking at the expansiveness of the Pacific Ocean. God gives us glimpses of his rest here and now on this side of glory. It's like those droplets on my glasses. He wets our palate. He gives us an experience of real rest, even here and even now. But the ocean of rest that awaits the saints in the new heavens and the new earth is beyond description. It's available to us through Jesus. When we come to Jesus Christ in faith, that elusive it is discovered. The longing of the human heart, the ache of the soul is satisfied. So before I close, I want to ask you this one question. If you do not know this rest, if you do not know this rest, would you like to? If you've been searching for the elusive it, if you've been on the endless, the endless treadmill of pursuit, and if happiness and satisfaction and joy and rest have always just seemed quite right out of your reach, I have really good news for you. In Jesus Christ, there is no more desperate searching that... That pursuit can end today with satisfaction. The pursuit comes to a restful and fully satisfied and fully content conclusion at the foot of the cross. This is the gospel. This is the good news. It is in Jesus Christ and in in his sufficiency through his life, shed blood, death, and resurrection that you and I find real and eternal rest for our souls. Church, one more time before I close in prayer real rest is available. Real rest is available to anyone who listens and responds in faith to the good news of Jesus Christ. If you've never responded to the good news of Jesus Christ in faith, today is your day. Pray with me. This is incredible, God. This is absolutely incredible. You have made yourself known to us by your Son. You didn't remain in the far-off, distant, starry skies, an illusion to humankind. You became flesh. You became the new Joshua, the new Moses. You made a way for us to enter into eternal rest, not the rest of a promised land, but the rest of a promised and eternal future. Jesus, you came and did what we could never do. You lived a sinless life in our place. You died a sinner's death, though you were sinless in our place on the cross. You shed blood by which we are washed clean. You defeated sin. And after three days, you walked out of the tomb alive. You defeated death. You've ascended into heaven where you are at the right hand of the Father today, interceding on our behalf and speaking an in invitation to rest over us in this place. God, for those of us that have known you, and have trusted in your promises, and have been prone to wander, bring us back today. God, remind us that those elusive it's that we continue to follow lead to nothing. God, put us back firmly on the pursuit that leads us directly to you. And God, I'm very mindful today of those men and women who may be in this room this morning who have never trusted in your son who have caught themselves up in life on many treadmills and many dead-end roads, many cul-de-sacs, pursuing something that was never found, following empty promises. God, this is the promise that is true. I pray that you give people ears to hear right now, ears to hear this truth, that God, in and through your son Jesus, you have secured salvation, new life, and eternal promise and eternal rest. All you ask is that we confess that Jesus, you are Lord. And we believe in our hearts, God, that you raised him from the dead. I pray today for my friends that are in this place who've never trusted in you, that right now in this place and in this moment, God, as you speak to their hearts by your spirit, that you would draw that confession out of men and women by your spirit, God, that they would say to you right now in the quietness of their heart between you and them, I need you, Jesus. I am tired and I'm tired of the dead ends, and I'm tired of the endless pursuits, I want you, Jesus. Please forgive me for trying to do it on my own for so many years, God. Hear my confession, which is an expression of my heart. I trust in you, Jesus. I'm all in. Forgive me of my sins, that I may be born again into the family of God. I am yours. Have your way with me. God, may we be a church. May we be a people that together collectively with arms locked pursue that rest that only you offer. God, may we joyously and courageously and boldly and lovingly proclaim that rest to the world around us. May all of our pursuits end at the foot of the cross. we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.